Hey, thank you for listening in to Risky Benefits, a podcast that informs you on all things benefits. We've got a saying around here, benefits isn't your main business, it's ours. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Risky Benefits and welcome to this week's episode. Our guest this week is Andrew Zito. Andrew is the president and COO at Advis Financial Partners, LLC. Today, Andrew will be talking with us about the Secure 2.0 Act and the effects that it will have on companies' 401k plans, HR associations, and clients. So let's, uh, let's get into this conversation, get to meet Andrew. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and what Advis Financial Partners do. Thanks, Rick, uh, and thank you for having us on. Um, um, excited to be here and share some of the details of, uh, of the SECURE Act. Uh, Advis is a retirement plan consulting firm. Uh, we specialize in helping plan sponsors uh, run their retirement plans in a really efficient and effective way. Uh, we focus on streaming down and, and, and uh, eliminating all the, the snags in the administration of running the plans, um, helping them design the plans to meet the needs of their organization, and then educating the participants um, so that they know how to use those plans and use the plans in the most effective way possible uh, to prepare them uh, for retirement. Uh, personally, I've been at uh, working with retirement plans for just a smidge under 20 years or so, uh, which seems like a long time, and it is. Um, I've done pretty much every aspect of working with a plan, so uh, we are really familiar with both the investment side uh, and uh, the ERISA administration side. Um, I'd love to tell you I spend lots of time talking about the investments. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of times the administrative side um, and some of the nuts and bolts uh, take over uh, from the investment side. Um, well, I'll tell you what, Andrew. I mean, this is all going to be interesting stuff. And, and honestly, a lot of the listeners out there may hear some of this stuff. And, um, it, you know, it's possible that, that it's new to them. So, you know, we'll try to delve as deep as we can. And maybe one of the things that we could do just kind of to start out is to talk about the Secure 2.0 Act, maybe define for the listening base, you know, what is that? And who does it affect and, and when does it go into effect? Yeah, the, uh, the Secure 2.0 Act, as its name says, is actually sort of the sequel um, to the Secure Act, which was passed back in 2019. Um, Secure 1.0 was passed in December of 2019 and was sort of touted as going to be, you know, this major bill that uh, really affected how retirement plans uh, were operated. There was a few provisions in it. There was nothing super impactful. Most people don't realize Secure 1.0 happened uh, because in the, the two or three months that followed its passage, uh, we had COVID and everything kind of changed with COVID and the Secure Act 1.0 sort of got mixed up in the wash and not a lot of people uh, or uh, HR uh, departments uh, kind of took hold of what happened in, in, in Secure 1.0. Uh, that's not why Secure 2.0 came through, but um, it's why not a lot of people know about Secure 1.0. Uh, I've had a bunch of clients ask me, when did Secure 1.0 come through? And that was back in 2019. Secure 2.0 has been around for, I would say, the better part of two years now. Uh, we, inside the industry, have been tracking it as a draft bill going through Congress uh, for about 24 months or so, uh, maybe a little less than that. But um, it, it was passed by the House and then it, it bounced over to the Senate where it spent some time and it seemed like it went back and forth a few times. Uh, we didn't really know if it was going to be passed or not uh, until the later part of 2022, uh, so late last year, right in December, uh, when we started to get word that it was going to be passed as part of the Omnibus, um, the big Consolidated Appropriates uh, Appropriations Act uh, 
uh, that gets passed at the end of the year. And um, the insiders, I guess you would say, I've had the opportunity to speak to some, some Congress folks over the years, uh, and they call this the Christmas tree uh, because what it is is it's a bill that they hang all these different sub-bills off of, and then they just pass it all at once. Um, and that's that's exactly what happened with the first SECURE Act and with the second SECURE Act. Um, it was passed December 23rd of last year, um, famously on um, – the Christmas Eve of last year, I had to run out to Staples because I went to print the law knowing that I had a good week and a half to do not, you know, being out of the office. I wanted to kind of get familiar with the law and I ran out of paper at my house because the law is about 300 pages long. Uh, and so I ran out to Staples to print it and spent the majority of my Christmas vacation um, and New Year's with, with the act, kind of reading through it to try and figure out what was inside of it. And it was uh, significantly more uh, voluminous and full of more things than anybody, uh, I think, uh, expected. Uh, there were a number of provisions that uh, we didn't see, uh, think that were going to be in the bill, and then there were a number of caveats inside some of the provisions we knew were going to be in the bill, but we didn't expect the caveats and we didn't expect some of the final text that was there. And so it really was sort of a, a game changer um, when I read the final bill uh, in terms of the things it will affect and the, um, the, the administrative lift, I guess I would say, that it's going to take to get the bill uh, into existence. I think, um, you know, in the 300 pages, there's something like 92 provisions and about 50 or 60 of those impact qualified retirement plans. So uh, certainly not a, um, a small bill or a not impactful bill. This one is this one is the real deal. And, and all plans, uh, big, small, um, you know, those who are well taken care of and those that are sort of just there for being there are going to be impacted by it. And so everybody's going to have to sort of sit up and pay attention to it. Yeah, you know, I think, Andrew, you defined right there for everybody why they need you. A, because we don't want to read this uh, at Christmas time. <laughs> and B, yeah, even if we did read it, you know, I don't know that we're going to understand it uh, for most of us. So, you know, I mean, it's so beyond it being quite large and, and having quite a lot of stuff in there. I mean, can, can you give us, you know, a, a synopsis or, or maybe what, what's the intention of the act in and of itself? Yeah, so um, first off, I should say that the bill's provisions, all 92 provisions, don't go into effect all at once. Um, they are spread out, actually, all the way. One is retroactive back to 2021, uh, and they go all the way out to becoming effective in 2033. Uh, the vast majority of them become effective. Uh, they were retro to 2022. Um, 2023 and of course 2024. So in the 22, 23, 24, um, we get the vast majority of the the heavy hitting, uh, most impactful provisions that are out there. Um, and so there's going to be a, a this is going to be something we're going to talk about for a little while. Um, in terms of what the intention of the act is, uh, the intention of the act is is really clear, um, and that is Congress has had, Congress had conducted a study um, many many years ago uh, that that showed them that there was a number of Americans who were not covered by qualified retirement plans. Um, and that was either through their part-time status or their employer was too small to offer a 401k plan. Uh, Congress discovered that just there were not enough Americans who had access to a 401k plan. They only had access to the other, you know, individual savings vehicles, IRAs and all that sort of, uh, sort of savings vehicles. So the, the clear intention of uh, the bill is to expand access to more Americans and to further encourage more Americans who do have access to save inside these vehicles. And they did that a couple of different ways, one by mandating it. Um, the, uh, a good example of that is 
going forward, all new 401k plans uh, will have to have auto enrollment in them, which means that by default, employees will be put into the plan um, and have to opt out as opposed to the other way around, which is, um, you know, if you, you are naturally out of the plan until you elect into it. So provisions like that, they've also included a lot of provisions to incentivize smaller employers uh, to start 401k plans. In fact, if you're a 401, if you're a smaller employer uh, who does not have a 401k plan, but you've been thinking about it, uh, now is the time uh, because there are a number of tax credits, direct tax credits uh, that can offset the cost of starting a 401k plan up. Uh, and that's a really, really important provision. In fact, there's even a credit uh, that came through this bill that allows you to um, contribute an employer uh, uh, contribution to match and have the government pay you back up to $1,000 per employee. So a lot of strong incentives to get um, uh, smaller employers who do not have 401k plans to start them. And, and that really fits in with the intention of the bill, which was to get more people to have access. Um, so that that's the intention. Uh, Unfortunately, the bill uh, goes uh, pretty deep into some existing provisions and, and changes some things because the intention of the bill is to um, expand access. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the 401k system is actually a huge uh, loss of revenue to the government. If you think about it, uh, the pre-tax, uh, the ability to save money pre-tax means that the government doesn't receive revenue and in, in, in tax revenue on the money that you contribute to the K plan. And so Congress views the 401k system a little differently than you and I do. Uh, we see it as a benefit. Congress sees it as an expense. Um, and it's a very expensive um, uh, provision at that. And so when Congress passes a bill, they look to make it revenue neutral. And so for all of the things that they gave away, incentivizing people to start new plans, they had to make that money back. Um, and there are a couple of provisions, which we'll talk about, that, that do increase revenue uh, to, to the government uh, as well. I guess the next place I'd like to go, it would be, you know, when we talk about plan sponsors and for many of the listeners, Andrew, they might not, might not know what a plan sponsor is. So maybe, you know, I'll ask the question, what are things that plan sponsors need to know about, but possibly for those listening, just make sure they know what a plan sponsor is. So a plan sponsor is the entity, the employing entity, typically the employing entity who um, sponsors the plan. So who actually starts the plan. So if I am the owner of ABC company um, and I uh, have the ABC company 401k plan for my employees, I am the plan sponsor. Uh, of the ABC company 401k plan. So when I say plan sponsor, I mean the organization that, that is uh, the one hosting the plan uh, or the one providing the plan to their employer. And typically that is the the, um, the company that, you know, the employing company. Um, and in terms of what things sponsors need to know about the act, uh, we could spend several, several hours on uh, going through all the different things the sponsors want to know about it. I've sort of picked out a few of the more um, heavy hitting, impactful provisions inside the act that I think plan sponsors will need uh, to sort of know about. I've also picked out a few that are sort of funny um, and interesting um, to, to talk through. Uh, and I think that when when the employers and, and plan sponsors are ready to learn more about this act, we actually have a document that we can provide to them that lists out everything. Uh, the internet is a wash right now. If you type in secure 2.0, uh, the internet is awash with summaries of what this act contains. And the only thing I would caution everybody who is listening to understand is um, 
it was really easy in the early days of uh, this act to sort of pull together what each provision says, go through the 300 pages and this provision reduced or increased RMD age from 72 to 73. That's pretty basic. Some of the more complicated provisions, however, um, what they intend to do and the reality of actually putting those into play is very different. The early coverage and even some of the coverage to today um, did a really good job of telling you what the bill should have said uh, or, or should do, or what it was intended to do. But there's a huge gap between that and the practical implications and the reality of putting these bills, uh, these provisions into effect. Um, I sat with a provider, one uh, of the leading providers in the country for 401k plans, um, and this was just yesterday. And we, we, we were laughing a little bit because as insiders, we know what it takes to get this stuff done. And again, this provider who is a well-known, reputable provider uh, sort of said, we haven't done anything because we're waiting for further guidance from the government on the law. Um, and I think that really kind of underscores how um, the provisions that are being publicized and are all over the internet, they are great, but we still don't know how to put them into place uh, because of a variety of the complexities that are out there. Um, a good example of this, and probably one of the ones that I hear um, the most is the um, the bill provides for, as an example, um, you allow to receive your employer contributions on a Roth basis. Without getting too deep in the weeds, most employees who are in 401k plans know you can contribute on a pre-tax basis where what you contribute does not get taxed, does not get taxed in your check, um, or you can contribute on a Roth basis, meaning you pay the taxes now, but you don't pay the taxes when you take the money out of your 401k plan. That's been around for a very long time. This new bill um, addresses just the employer piece. So let's say, for example, you put your money into the plan on a Roth basis. You pay the taxes now. Up until now, your employer match, the amount of money your company puts in for you, that would always go in pre-tax. You didn't pay taxes on that. You always paid the taxes on that when you took it out. Well, that created a weird administrative situation where you had your money going in Roth, you'd already paid the taxes on it, but you had the employer money going in pre-tax, so you had to pay the taxes on that later on. Um, the bill now allows for employer contributions to go in on a Roth basis. That sounds like a solution to a problem, but in practicality, it creates a couple of administrative sharp edges where, for example, you now have to pay taxes from your regular earnings on your employer contribution. So if you contribute $3,000 from your own money and your employer contributes $1,500 in match, you now need to pay taxes on the $1,500 from your regular wages when they're put into the plan, if your employer elects this. Um, and then from the employer side of that, there are a whole bunch of administrative changes that have to take place. Payroll systems have to be updated, for example, to include the amount of the employer contribution. Most payroll, pay stubs and earnings do not show employer contributions. They only show net earnings or the, 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 the earnings of the employee. They don't, they don't show whatever your employer puts into the plan or they don't include it in earnings. Well, in order for it to pay taxes, you'd have to include that in earnings. So that's a payroll programming issue. Um, in addition to that, Lots of companies have vesting schedules, meaning you don't get the full amount until you've been there for five years or three years or whatever it is. Um, in a Roth situation, that is um, something where 
how do you pay taxes on something now that you're not actually vested into uh, for for three years? Um, that's a that's one of the other issues that we're sort of working through. So the, the contributions have to be 100% vested up front. So this one provision, which sounds like it's the solution to a problem, uh, creates a whole bunch of administrative lift. And there are a lot of questions which we still have for the regulators, uh, the Department of Labor and the IRS, uh, to give us clarity on before we proceed on uh, to actually implement this. I've had a couple of clients call me. They called me right after it was passed and asked me if we could do this. And I sort of had to say, you know, I, I don't know that I don't know that we can. Uh, that is one of the provisions I think is something we're going to be hearing about. Um, another provision I think that comes right off the top of my head that is uh, one that will will cause some um, some heartburn for some folks is actually a two uh, piece here. Uh, the first part is really good. Uh, employees who are uh, between the ages of 60 and 63 will be able to contribute a little bit more. Everybody is typically familiar with the catch up. Once you're over the age of 50, you can contribute that extra $7,500 to catch up your retirement savings. Um, they've put in what I sort of dubbed as a super catch up. Uh, you can contribute up to $10,000 more if you're between the ages of 60 and 63. This one isn't really administratively burdensome to uh, to manage, but it's a little bit awkward in that employees will be able to elect up to this $10,000 for just this few number of years, and then it has to be shut off. Whereas right now the catch-up goes in perpetuity until you know until you're retired. So um, this one is um, one that was attempted to be good, but I think it's going to create an awkward situation and some errors where you know the system is set to keep allowing you to contribute an extra $10,000 and then boom, you hit 64 and you can no longer do that. And if the system doesn't shut that off and bring you back to the regular limits, you can have you know an error on your, on your paycheck. So a lot of administrative um, uh, changes that will occur there. The flip side of that is for employees who are using the catch-up option, uh, those over the age of 50, and who make more than $145,000 a year, uh, will actually have to have their catch-up go into the plan on a Roth basis. They will no longer be able to contribute uh, their their catch-up contributions on a pre-tax basis. It will have to go in Roth. Um, and this again is for only for those employees who are over the age of, uh, who earn more than $145,000. Uh, what is what is the meaning behind this? What's the, the, the incentive behind this? Um, as I mentioned earlier, Congress has to pay for the bill somehow. And if you think about it, all of the money that would be going in as catch-up pre-tax, the government doesn't make money on. But if they require by law that it go in on a Roth basis, now you'll be required to pay the taxes on that upfront. And that increases government, that increases revenue to the government. Um, from an administrative perspective, employers will now be responsible for identifying those employees who are over $145,000 in income and who are making catch-up contributions, and they will have to ensure that those catch-up contributions go in on a Roth basis. Again, the provision is good, but the administrative lift to employers is a little uh, is a little burdensome. Ultimately, as it relates to that, I, I... A lot of the people who are actually providing the 401k plans, their systems are probably going to be what ultimately end up catching such things, right? Yes. And um, I would love to tell you, sometimes a joke that I will make all the time with, with folks who ask me what I do for a living is I am a payroll triage consultant. And <laughs> um, 
the, there, there's a, an article on the internet that I wrote years ago um, that says the Achilles heel of all 401k plans is the payroll system. And it's true. Um, all errors, most errors, 90% um, of the errors that occur inside 401k plans happen at the interface between the payroll system and the 401k record keeping system. Yeah. Um, if you think about the amount of data that is exchanged between those two systems uh, and the impact of it, it is super high and super impactful. And, um, an alarming number of companies who sponsor 401k plans do not have an electronic link between the two. Meaning if I go onto the providers, the, the 401k website and I enroll and I say, I want to contribute 4%. Um, there is no electronic, um, there's no electronic means by which that, that instruction gets into my payroll system record and says, Andrew Zito wants to defer 4%. There's a paper report that's printed sent to the, um, the employer. And that employer's payroll person enters that 4% into their payroll system manually. Wow. Um, I would say it's probably about, I'm going to give it 70% does it manually, 30% does it automatically. That's um, that's the number. And I, I suspect that over the coming years, that's going to shift dramatically. But to date, payroll providers, especially the larger ones, um, and if anybody who works for a larger payroll provider is a listener to your podcast, um, please, please uh, begin to work more closely with the retirement plan systems. Payroll systems and pay plan systems have not tightly integrated over the years. And I think that that's something that's going to need to change in order for this act uh, to come to pass. Interesting. Okay. Sorry, keep going. I, I didn't mean to disrupt you. I just was wondering, you know, how the record keepers were going to no, and you're, you're spot on. It's going to be up to the payroll system or the plan record keeping system to ensure that all of these, I call them switches, you know, do you want your money to go in Roth or do you want it to go in pre-tax? To me, that's a switch. Um, and, and in my in my speak, I call them switches. All these new switches that we've just put in, um, the, the plan uh, is starting to look like the, the cockpit of a, of a jumbo jet uh, with all these different switches that a participant can flip. And every time a participant flips a switch, the plans, the, the plan sponsor and their HR team or payroll team has to automatically make that change in a corresponding system. And then all the downstream effects have to be followed. And that's really, I think that the, the lift that comes with this act, um, you know, there are, as I mentioned, a whole bunch of other provisions. I'll, I'll give you um, just a few of them to kind of round this out um, that I think that are going to be impactful uh, over over the next couple of years. Uh, there are a couple of new provisions with regards to withdrawals. So one of the things that Congress identified was that folks are hesitant to put plan, money into their plan to contribute to their 401k plan because they don't feel they can get it out in the event that they need it in an emergency. This was a huge finding by Congress and they have done a lot of work to try and make it easier to get money out of the 401k system. This is the uh, quintessential double-edged sword, if you think about it, because 401ks have historically been this sort of locked bastion of retirement savings where it was difficult to get money out, and that is why it retained um, the savings, and that's why uh, that's a large portion of its success. Uh, while I agree that it's important for, for participants to be able to get some of that money out in the event of an emergency, we have to understand that when we, when we allow that, we we start to create leakage from the 401k system and we start to erode the, the effectiveness of saving for retirement. Um, this act includes a whole bunch of new potential withdrawal options. Most of them are optional uh, to the employer. Um, I should say that uh, all of the provisions I've spoken about, some of them are optional and some of them are not. And you have to sort of pay attention to that. And the guide that we put 
that I'm assuming you can link your listeners to. Um, it has a breakdown of whether it's required or optional. But uh, some of the new dis- uh, withdrawal distributions uh, that are out there is there's a $1,000 emergency withdrawal exception. So now participants can take up to $1,000. This starts in 24, I should say. Um, they can take up to $1,000 for any unforeseen or immediate financial need. There's no 10% penalty. It's just basically a, a mini hardship withdrawal that they can pull the $1,000 out uh, to pay for an unforeseen um, emergency. Uh, the SECURE Act 1.0 actually put into place a qualified birth or adoption withdrawal. Uh, this is going back to the first one, but I figure it's worth mentioning here. So if you have a baby uh, or if you uh, adopt a child, you are able to take up to $5,000 out of your plan uh, without incurring that 10% penalty. Um, this, the, the Secure Act 2.0 included a similar provision that if you are the victim of uh, domestic abuse, you can take up to $10,000 from your plan uh, to offset expenses. Um, and um, the last one is uh, with regards to hurricane uh, or uh, natural disaster withdrawals. Uh, there is a um, up to $22,000 withdrawal that's available in the event that FEMA declare, declares a natural uh, federal disaster area in your county. For those of us in Florida, this one hits a little bit close to home um, because we got hit with two hurricanes this year. And, and uh, both times FEMA declared federal disasters and unlocked these provisions inside the plan. And that money can be really useful uh, for you know, making repairs to your home or, you know, basic living expenses if your home has been damaged beyond repair. Um, and so those those are important and, and the law kind of um, codifies those. One of the other uh, really interesting provisions that's out there and we've gotten a lot of chatter over um, is something called student loan matching. Uh, and this is something that I think employers, when they want to be competitive, are really going to have to pay attention to. Although I think Congress um, didn't do the greatest job in drafting this particular provision, um, and I think they need to make some changes to it in order for it to be really well adopted. Essentially, the, the thrust of this piece here is that um, plan sponsors have identified that younger employees, and those employees with student loans, um, are unable to make contributions to the 401k plan because they're, pay, they're, they're paying their student loans and they need the rest of the money to live. Um, and so they, they've noticed a huge trend where uh, folks with loans don't defer into their plan and don't contribute. And so what they've enabled um, is for employers to say, okay, if you're making student loan payments, we will actually use those and pretend that you are deferring that money into the plan so that we can give you an employer match. Uh, let me break this down in, in basic terms. Let's assume I have a dollar for dollar match in my plan. I may back to my ABC plan and I'm an employee, you know, that makes $50,000 a year um, and I contribute um, $2,000 to the plan and I have a dollar for dollar match. So my employer contributes $2,000. I've contributed a total of four to the plan, uh, my money and the employer's money. Now, let's say I'm that same $50,000 employee, but I can't afford to defer the $2,000 into the plan of my money because that $2,000 is paid to student loans outside the plan. What the new law says is that the employer can actually recognize that $2,000 you paid to student loans as a deferral and continue to deposit the $2,000 match into that participant's 401k account. This sounds on paper like a great provision, and it should be, and it is. Um, However, 
Congress made a couple of, I think, drafting errors or maybe intentional. I'm not sure why they did it. Uh, a couple of things in the way they, they wrote the law up that I think are going to make it really hard to put in place. And I'm hoping that we get some clarification on this because I think this could be a really important provision. And there's going to be a lot of people asking for this. Um, number one, they said that the rate of matching has to be the same as the regular rate of matching uh, on the rest of uh, the plan. So the... Um, uh, if you do a, a dollar for dollar match up to 3% uh, on the regular plan, then you have to do a dollar for dollar match on the uh, 401k side. I mean, on the, the match side, I apologize. That piece of it can really increase the exposure of an employer to match dollars. Um, there's, there's the potential for employers match dollars to really, really skyrocket there. And unfortunately, there's no way to project the amount of exposure that exists. I had an employer say to me, well, could you do a quick projection on me? Because employers quick, you know, frequently ask us to project their costs. Um, and we do it all the time. But the employer asked me, can you project for us what this what this would, would look like? And I kind of smirked at them, laughed a little bit and said, sure, line up all of your employees and have them write down on a piece of paper how much they make in loan payments. And I'd be happy to then project for you how much the match would be. Um, the reality is that employers know how much their employees make. And so they can easily project match costs on regular deferrals. But on a student, we don't know what our employees make on a student loan basis. We don't know how many loans they have. We don't know who has them and who makes them. Um, so it's almost impossible for us to even gauge or project um, how much an increase a match would be if we offered this as an option. Uh, and that makes implementation really difficult because you can turn this on and instantly, you know, increase by 20, 30, 40, 50% your, your match spend as an employer. Um, and that's something that employers are going to have to really think through. The other thing that I think was, um, was an error in the, in the bill is that they said that you can rely on self-certification in this. And what that means is, the employers do not need to verify that the employee made this this student loan payment before creating the match. Um, they can just take the employee's word for it. And administratively, that's much easier, but it opens the door to a lot of abuse. Um, and we've seen this before in other provisions in the past, and I think this is something employers need to really pay attention to. Um, I can be that $50,000 employee, and I can be making legitimately $2,000 in student loan payments outside the plan. I can come into my HR team's office and say, listen, I make $3,000 in, in student loan payments, and you have to match me on $3,000. Um, and there's no there's no way for the employer to verify that uh, if they rely on self-certification. And so um, when that news gets out that there's sort of free money on the table, that can lead to abuse. I think a better way to do that is to require some sort of documentation. And the good news is that the law says that you, you may rely on self-certification. It does not say you have to. So we're encouraging all of our plan sponsors who are thinking about this to definitely require some sort of um, um, documentation in order to you know facilitate and to prevent some of this abuse so um, these are a couple of the provisions that i think are the headliners from this bill like i said there's probably another 70 that are out there uh, but these are the ones that i think are going to have the most impact are the ones receiving the most amount of buzz um, there were a bunch of changes to rmd ages and some other administrative provisions but those aren't really getting the 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 street talk that that the major provisions are yeah, so I mean, it, it just as like a from a layman perspective, you know, Andrew, it almost seems like okay, there's this big algorithm that's been created, 
by this legislation and or bill, sorry, bill. Uh, and it's essentially creating a scenario whereby the the plan sponsors or employers are having to work with the record keepers. Uh, well, not really work with them, but the record keepers are having to take these algorithms, build them into their systems to try to catch all of these provisions, to try to make it so that these it can be as automated as possible, um, which probably won't happen across the board. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. So an employer is going to go out there, establish a program with one of these record keepers who's going to manage their 401k and their 401k program is going to try to incorporate all these provisions to the degree possible. To your point, in some circumstances, there's going to need to be additional documentation that happens outside of the system, like, you know, did, did, am I paying for tuition or what have you? Um, and there's probably going to be errors on occasion and, and cleanup, which kind of leads into one of the other questions I had, which was, you know, administrative heartburn. What that's going to, what is that going to look like? And it, it seems like you've kind of hit on that to some degree. Is there anything else you'd want to throw into that bucket? No, I mean, the the heartburn is going to vary on each of these provisions based on that provision. Some are going to create very, very little heartburn, and some are going to create a whole bunch. The good news overall is that the administrative heartburn and lift is largely surrounding uh, the optional provisions. Um, and so, um, like I said, there's only a few that are required. Um, and the optional ones are the ones that I think from our perspective are going to be the ones that create that that. that that heartburn. Um, and so I think the most important thing that plan sponsors um, um, can do is start to understand these provisions and really talk to somebody who, who understands the bill uh, and start, you know, um, uh, talking through that so they can prevent some of that, that heartburn. Uh, the good news is one of the provisions that was actually included that I didn't talk about was an expansion of something called EPCRS, which is the Employee Plan Compliance Resolution System. And that's a system by which plan sponsors who find an error that they made can submit that error automatically to uh, the Department of Labor or the IRS and correct it without the fear of penalty from the government. Um, this is a super important program. It's been around for years, been very, very successful. Um, it has been limited in its scope to correcting only a few um, a few types of errors. That This bill, Secure 2.0, blew the doors wide open. And so now pretty much any error that you create unintentionally uh, inside your plan is available for correction uh, through uh, the EPRS program. So a lot of the errors you talked about are going to be much easier to correct. Okay. I mean, that's super helpful because, I mean, one of the other questions I had was, what can people do to prepare for the act? But it sounds like one of the things you're saying is probably one of the best ways to prepare for this is to, A, get a subject matter expert, sit down and understand, maybe talk with that individual and find out, okay, what's required, A, B, what's optional? And then from what's optional, uh, what is a lift to the company, meaning what's going to help me with recruiting, what's going to help me with retention, um, and then, okay, if we do these things, you know, what are the implications, consequences, and does my record keeper even do these things? And if they don't do these things, you know, what's the recommendation? I mean, is this kind of what the prep process might look like with a subject matter expert? Um, and if the answer is yes to that, you know, could you maybe address what some of the benefits would be to trying to implement some of these things within the next year? Sure. So you're 100% right on the on, on sort of the, what your employer's been doing now uh, prep process. You know, um, the most important thing plan sponsors can do right now is is understand what the bill contains, and understand um, first of all what their organization's 
um, temperature is on each of the different types of provisions, which ones do they think are absolute non-starters, which are the ones that they want to explore, explore further, uh, and which are the ones that are required will have the most impact, and what do you have to do to implement those. Um, that conversation absolutely needs to start now, and there's a reason for that. Most of these major provisions start in 23 or 24. Um, Either way, the plan sponsor, the plan platforms, the major ones, will start to be able to implement these things. I think by the beginning of 24, uh, specifically the mandated ones. And so, the bad news there is that every 401k plan in the country is going to have to comply by 1124, and that's going to create a massive logjam at the uh, at the provider level, right? Uh, and the providers, I can tell you from speaking to them, are kind of worried about that. Um, and I, I feel like it's going to be a situation where the the, the uh, waiter or waitress is going to come to your table and say, do you know what you'd like to order? And if you don't know the answer to that question, they're going to skip you and move on to the next person. Um, and so you don't want to get caught making that decision in 24 or even late 23. You need to sort of be ready and ready to go uh, with what you are thinking you're going to do as an organization when your provider is ready. Um, because the turnaround on some of these things was really, really short and there's going to be a bit of a traffic jam. So I think right now the most important thing is for employers to sit down uh, with a subject matter expert, with somebody who understands their plans. Um, I strongly, and I always encourage this, I strongly encourage you to include um, to not make these decisions from a top-down perspective, meaning the committees that we talk to sometimes don't have anybody that represents the, for lack of a better terminology, boots on the ground folks. Um, and I think that in this particular case, it's super vital to have um, one of the nuts and bolts boots on the ground, even down to somebody who potentially administers the payroll um, in on some parts of these conversations because they and only they can give you the perspective of what this lift looks like. And they have a lot more institutional knowledge about your employee base and sometimes I think you give them credit for, uh, or we all give them credit for. So I, I, I sort of encourage you to have that person in the room with you when you're talking about this uh, and really just walk through each one of the provisions and say yes, no, yes, no, maybe we need to explore this more and decide which one you 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 know you want to look at. The ones you're going to stumble on the most are going to be the student loan piece um, because it's very, very difficult to get a number on that. And that's the one thing that I think you need to start talking about now. Um, in terms of benefits, listen, I, I know I, I dogged on some of the provisions of this and I, I should say, I think in, in general, the provisions of this bill were well-intentioned. I think that they are, you know, they're, they are, um, they will be successful in expanding access to plans and to getting more people to save. Um, I think that uh, the part that was under was overlooked in the in the drafting and some of the effective dates is just the administrative lift we're going to need to get there. Um, many payroll providers and plan sponsors are not completely compliant with Secure 1.0. Um, you know, they had the the CARES Act, which was the the COVID bill that came out in 2020, uh, and they're still sort of trying to recover from that. And so there there's um, a lot of administrative uh, programming and switching that needs to happen. Once all that happens, I think the benefits are, are pretty clear and they're you know provisional based. Uh, employees will be able to save more. Older employees will be able to save more. Um, they'll get better access to their money, which as I mentioned, could be a double-edged sword. Student loans could be matched, which is a major benefit to younger employees. Um, and there's a variety of other things built in to this, which um, I think are, are beneficial uh, to employers and um, those who comply with or, or who offer some of the new provisions, will they be in a better spot from a recruiting perspective? I think they will. Do I think that the provisions override the good old fashioned, you know, having a, a really generous employer contribution um, and, you know, a, a well-managed plan that doesn't have a lot of cost in it? No, I, I think the provisions are nice add-ons, uh, but I don't think anybody is deciding 
to work for you or not based on whether you you know you offer the um, the uh, qualified birth or adoption withdrawal or you know the um, uh, you allow Roth contributions. I don't think that that's a deal breaker, um, but they are going to be nice to have. Oh, that's, that's great. Great insight. You know, I think you've covered all the questions that I had, Andrew. I, I guess the last one that I would generally reserve for anyone is, um, you know, what else? Is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Um, you know, I, we've covered a lot of the bill uh, here today, and I think it's um, I think it's been a great conversation, and I hope I got some of the major points across. The one thing I would let everybody know is I did not – um, scratch the surface of this bill. I hit some of the bigger ones, but uh, I maybe talked about five of 50 or so that impact you know 401k plans. So um, if anything, the takeaway for me from today is continue this conversation. If you are an HR person um, and you work in the HR team, um, you know this is something you want to make sure that you're um, uh, the people above you and the, the management and the decision makers and the exec team uh, are are aware of. Um, if you are on your 401k committee, this is something that you want to make sure that you are discussing. We have, with our clients, just as an example, uh, we have already done two webinars to have our clients go through and understand each of the bills on a, on a larger kind of classroom basis. And then in each of our first committee meetings this year, we are going through each provision of the bill to get the first read on what the employers think. And then we are taking away from that which ones we need to explore in more detail for each employer. And then our next committee meeting is going to say, okay, here are the open questions. Here is what we've found. What do we think we're going to do? We're hoping we get some guidance in the meantime from the government on some of the questions that we have. Um, but these are things that you cannot my opinion, push off until later in 23. Um, so, um, you know, this bill came out to be far more robust than we expected, and every plan will have to adjust to it. This is not something we can ignore and just, you know, sign an amendment later on. This will require action from every plan. And so um, I guess my one takeaway is uh, this is not a drill. Um, you know, do a little bit more research. Uh, I'm sure my information will be provided if you would like to uh, talk further about some of these things and you don't have your own subject matter expert. Um, we are doing a variety of webinars that go deeper into the weeds on this stuff and you are more than welcome to join those. Um, do whatever you can to become educated um, on the bill and the impacts to your plan. That's awesome. Andrew, uh, I'd just like to say thank you for coming on today. I know this stuff's super important to those <clears throat> out there who are, are managing uh, places of employment and or the benefits uh, associated with the places of employment. So, th so thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And um, if there's any follow-up questions, please let me know. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you to the listeners out there. If you have any questions, please contact us or look for information on our homepage at www.fbmc.com. Again, that was Andrew Zito with Advis Financial Partners, LLC. You can reach out to us to get in touch with him, or you can Google it, and I'm sure you can find his information that way as well. Uh, and we will also put his information on our podcast post. So thanks again to the listeners, and remember, you can find us and subscribe on any podcast app. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to Risky Benefits. If you're interested in learning more, please visit www.fbmc.com. We hope you'll join us next time on Risky Benefits.